It's Monday, September 16th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh was accused of another sexual misconduct allegation over the weekend, which was reported to the FBI during his confirmation process, but was not investigated. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us to discuss this new allegation, who came out on top from the last Democratic debate, and a new report that says Border Patrol agents are suffering from a crisis in morale. This comes after a severe backlash for enforcing President Trump's immigration policies. Next. Many of the suspects in recent mass shootings have posted to hate-filled online forums such as 8chan. Manifestos are posted there where people share them, discuss, and get inspiration to commit other attacks. Large numbers of fatalities are even celebrated as high scores. The difficulty for law enforcement in getting a handle on this is that posts are often anonymous, and when a site gets shut down, people just move on to the next one. Georgia Wells, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more on the online world where mass shooters thrive. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I think this is the New York Times just 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 being bitter enders. And you know what? I bet you the next Democratic uh, debate, they'll all be saying impeach Kavanaugh, impeach Trump. There's nobody they don't want to impeach. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Glad to be back. Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh was publicly accused of another sexual misconduct allegation over the weekend. This was reporting by the New York Times. The story that they wrote up had a lot to do with Deborah Ramirez, who was one of the women who came forward during his confirmation process. But this new allegation is another story, a side story that also happened at Yale in a story that was very similar to Deborah Ramirez. What do we know about this new allegation? That's right. We learned this weekend that another one of Brett Kavanaugh's classmates had previously come forward and informed the FBI during the confirmation hearings that they were witness to an incident in which Kavanaugh, uh, there was a, an inebriated or, or an unconscious woman, a woman in uh, a party, and that after joking with friends, Kavanaugh exposed himself and pressed his genitals up against this woman. We understand that the FBI did little of nothing to investigate this accusation and that it was made sort of in an attempt to corroborate what they were learning contemporaneously at the time about Kavanaugh during those confirmation hearings. A lot of it has to do with the FBI and the lack of investigation they did. And we all remember at the time of the confirmation hearings, that was a, a big issue. They said, let's get an FBI investigation. Chuck Grassley and a lot of the senators didn't want to go through a drawn out investigation. They wanted to get the confirmation process over with very quickly. But even with Deborah Ramirez's account, later on, we found out that there were a lot of people that were talking about it. I think even her mother at the time had heard of her original account. And we also know that at the time of the Kavanaugh hearings, the criticism of Kavanaugh's accusers who went public with their accusations was that they should have gone to the FBI. They should have gone to investigators. They should have gone to law enforcement with these accusations. And they were accused of just seeking fame or uh, being engaged in political attacks, sort of suggesting that their decision to go public was political. Well, now we've learned that there was another person who didn't go public, who stayed and did all of the things that the critics of Kavanaugh's accuser said they should have been doing. And still we know now that they didn't get those accusations taken very seriously. 
What has been the reaction to this so far? Brett Kavanaugh has since been confirmed. Obviously, he is the newest Supreme Court justice. What, if any, impact on him will this have? It's likely to have very little impact on Brett Kavanaugh. These are appointments for life. There is a process to impeach or remove members of the Supreme Court. However, in the current political control of the U.S. Senate and Congress, that doesn't seem very likely. The court can move to sanction its own members. That also seems unlikely at this point. You know, we saw President Trump's reaction, which was that Kavanaugh was being wronged again, that this was uh, he was the victim in this. So it doesn't appear at this point, even despite lots of criticism in the wake of this new revelation, that we're going to see any actual repercussions for the justice. Last week, we had another Democratic debate. Who do you think came out on top of that? We saw a much narrower field in the Democratic debate last week, 10 candidates, and that meant that all of the top five frontrunners were on the same stage, squaring off against one another. We're still going to have to see as the week goes on how their poll numbers stack up with this initial fallout from the debate, but it looks like it might be a little bit of status quo. No one did any real harm. We did see former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke seemed to have a really big fundraising boost off of his answer about taking assault weapons that he wanted the government to confiscate all of the AR-15s and AK-47s. But then we saw sort of a backlash within his own party that they thought that that was the wrong position for a candidate for president to be taking. It still very much seems like a three-way race between Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders, though. That's right. We know that those three continue to maintain the lion's share of voter support. And, you know, it's 143 days from that debate until the Iowa caucuses begin. So there's still a lot of time for things to change, for things to shake up, for voters to reassess, for candidates to make new appeals. It is narrowing, but I wouldn't rule the rest of the 17 remaining candidates out. Maybe you could rule out like 10 of them. And the next debate seems like they might have more than 10 candidates again, so they might have to split it back up into two days again. That's right. The next debate will be October 15th and 16th in Westerville, Ohio, a suburb of Columbus. And Tom Steyer, the billionaire who has pushed for climate change legislation, was a late entry into the election, has qualified for that October debate. So there will be 11. And that means one good thing for those of us who uh, watch all of these, which is that we're likely to see five and six or six and six candidates a night. And that means the candidates will have much longer to give answers, maybe some candidates candidates that aren't getting as much time might have more time to engage. So we could see a bit of a different dynamic in that next debate. The last thing I wanted to bring up was another story from the New York Times talking about the Border Patrol. We know that President Trump has made immigration and and, uh, border protection uh, one of the central parts of his presidency. The New York Times story points to a crisis in morale for U.S. Customs and Border Protection agents you know, over this whole national backlash really against the the policies of the president, but they're feeling the criticism. They feel like they're facing the brunt of this. Uh, I think some of the agents say that we're, we're hated now. 
that's right. There's a report from the New York Times that agents are saying that they're having their food spit in, that they're getting accosted in public, including some who have said that they've left Border Patrol. I mean, this was an agency that largely flew under the radar for a long time. They were the folks you thought were uh, searching for terrorists and drugs at the border. And President Trump's desire to see the immigration laws enforced to the maximum ability of the law has left many Americans unhappy with the outcome and taking it out on Border Patrol and on ICE, who are sort of the same uh, laws being enforced in in different places. As you said, early on, they were doing a lot of police work, police type work, looking for drug runners, things like that. Now it's humanitarian work as more family units are coming. There's a lot of unaccompanied minors. They're taking care of children in these in these respects. And early on, uh, becoming a border agent was seen as a ticket to the middle class. You know, the pay was decent with overtime hours. You can make a lot of money in a few years. But this whole thing has changed. The, the job has changed now. People don't want to sign on anymore. They're, they're about 1,800 agents short of their hiring goals. This whole controversy with the Facebook group where border agents were using some nasty language talking about migrants. There's been a lot of stuff happening and, and coming to light about this. And they're just uh, they're facing the brunt of the criticisms for everything. It is. This is the president's policies, but the people who are tasked, and, and these are career people, so these aren't people who sign up to work for a politician or because they share their ideology or their ideas on policy, sort of bearing the brunt of the criticism of, of that fallout. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. think of this as a very scary version of whack-a-mole and so you knock one site down and the users move to another site and so indeed lawmakers have like you said been trying to learn more about how 8chan works but already these users have moved on to other sites it's a network of sites and they appear to be leading from one violent attack to the next joining us now is georgia wells reporter for the wall street journal thanks for joining us georgia thank you oscar We're going to be talking about the online world where a lot of mass shooters thrive. A lot of these suspects in recent attacks have been posting to forums such as 8chan and others. And these are just really breeding grounds for inspiration and really pushing people to act on a lot of these crazy thoughts and manifestos that they post. And one person in particular that's kind of a common thread among all of them are Brenton Tarrant, who is the uh, New Zealand mosque shooter. A lot of them really look up to him and draw inspiration from the acts that he did. Tell us a little bit about this whole online world, Georgia. Let me start by saying that it really comes down to this, that there are forums online that celebrate mass shooters and they promote white supremacy. They encourage people to carry out attacks and they judge success by how high a kill count these shooters are able to get. And you brought up Brenton Tarrant. And the reason he's celebrated so much is because they see him as having a particularly high kill count. And so what we're seeing is these forms are creating a chain of influence that appears to lead from one mass shooting to the next. Yeah. And even when subsequent shooters go on their attacks and let's say they don't kill that many people, which is a good thing for everybody else. But in these forums, they're kind of ridiculed almost. There's for saying, oh, you know, they didn't they didn't do a good enough job. On these forums, they will talk about deciding to canonize different shooters. And often they make this decision based on the kill count. And so in the example of 
Crucius, who was the alleged shooter in El Paso a couple weeks ago on one forum, they decided to make him a saint. And in that same discussion, they decided to not make the alleged shooter in Norway recently a saint because he was overtaken by the worshippers at the mosque. And so that's where you see like how they've created this framework for how they judge the success of these people who are motivated to carry out very violent attacks. Tell us a little bit about where these conversations are taking place. A lot of them are on 8chan, but there's a lot of other websites. There's a new one that popped up called Nchan. Well, it's been around for a while, but people migrate towards there after there's more restrictions on certain websites or websites get taken down. And there are these online forums known as polls, short for politically incorrect. And a lot of the conversations are happening there. So there's 8chan, there's 4chan. There's also groups on Telegram, which is a chat app that also has a broadcast feature. And one thing that's interesting to note is that these forums are not the same. They have different rules. They have different kind of social mores. And 8chan is notable as being the site that had the most extreme calls for violence. And now it has been shut down, at least temporarily. But its users are going to other sites and they appear to be trying to post the same content on those sites that they had been posting on 8chan. So, for example, shortly after the shooting in El Paso, the gunman who opened a fire in the mosque in Norway, he allegedly posted a manifesto to Enchan. And Enchan came out after that saying that this was the first time they had seen that behavior on their forum and it was new and they were kind of working to deal with that. And that shows how these users are attempting to make the other sites into their own image. HN itself was calling itself the darkest reaches of the internet where these people could gather. I know lawmakers and law enforcement officials are trying to understand how these sites work so they can combat the violence that's posted there. One of the big problems is that a lot of these postings are anonymous, so you can't really track down these people. And I know Congress was trying to speak to the owner of 8chan and just kind of nail him down on some of this stuff. But even still, he says that the website is a place for free speech and that they don't want to moderate any of this. Yeah, I mean, you got to think of this as a very scary version of whack-a-mole. And so you knock one site down and the users move to another site. And so indeed, lawmakers have, like you said, been trying to learn more about how 8chan works. But already these users have moved on to other sites. And really the, yeah. ch the chilling effect that we see of this is that all these forums do is provide inspiration for people to start acting. And, you know, someone says, hey, I, I support Brenton Tarrant and what he did. And then it spurs other lone wolf actors to go on their own rampages. Yeah, it's a network of sites and they appear to be leading from one violent attack to the next. So tell us a little bit about some of the studies that have been done into how people get radicalized on these forums. I know a, a lot of them, one of the shooters in particular, Mr. Ernest, who was in the San Diego synagogue shooting, he said he had only been lurking on 8chan specifically for about a year and a half. That quickly he was compelled to act on some of these actions. In the writing that John Ernst has said that he posted. He specifically thanks A-Chan for what he learned there. And so that gives us a pretty clear view into how he describes his evolution. Then also there's a researcher, Robert Evans, who looked at how 75 kind of extremists online described coming to their views. 
And in his research, he found that they attributed YouTube videos as shaping their views. And so it appears that people find these YouTube videos that often are cons push conspiracy theories. And then also on these forums, they will pass them around and also discuss some of the conspiracy theories that appear to drive some of their behavior. I think Mr. Evans, you were talking about, uh, you know, he says they start on YouTube that's pushing these conspiracy theories. They move on to other sites, other places. And 8chan was kind of the end of this journey of radicalization. At that point, you're getting there where people are pushing you to act on certain thoughts and beliefs at that point. We even saw this happening with John Ernst, where a person who was close with him said that ahead of the attack that he is the alleged perpetrator for, described 8chan as the big leagues, that he had been on 4chan and then he had graduated to the more serious forum. And so that's where you see the kind of references to this site where they appear to be getting some of their ideas. So what's the future of these sites then? I know lawmakers and law enforcement officials are trying to get a handle on this, but it seems like everybody just agrees that you can't. They're going to move from one place to another. They're going to find these communities. They're going to go where they want to go to keep talking about this stuff. That's exactly the big question here. So lawmakers are trying to learn more about how these sites can work proactively ahead of potential attacks. And also they're trying to determine if there should be a role for government here in stepping in when there appears to be calls to violence. But these are really tricky questions, particularly in the U.S., where people take the First Amendment really seriously. It's just such an interesting look into where a lot of these manifestos kind of get circulated and, and these ideas really kind of start growing. And you laid out a bunch of different comments in your article just egging people on, really. You know, it's uh, he didn't go far enough. Can somebody else step in and go take over where he left off? The calls to all this violent action are really very strong on these websites. And also, often there's a underlying culture of irony and sarcasm on the sites. But part of what I think a lot of people find scary here is even if those comments were made by someone who would claim that it was made ironically or in jest, it only takes one person to take that comment seriously for there to be more violence. I know that the spreading of these manifestos, as soon as these things are posted and when these attacks are happening, these manifestos, all this conversation really intensifies in the moment, like almost real time. And we know that the uh, New Zealand mosque shooter, he was live streaming the video, obviously, and that was like a big catalyst for people. It's hard to digest really how this inspiration happens. They see it happening on video and then they want to form their own ideas and go and act on there also. But this is a part of the problem, the, this almost real-time discussion that's happening while a lot of this violence is happening. The live stream part you brought up was fascinating. We spoke with a researcher who talked about the live streams as this twisted form of entertainment. And certainly like you could see aspects of that in the tragedy in New Zealand. Also now, when news breaks that there's some shooting happening on these forums, people will start asking for a live stream link because they've been trained to expect it. Yeah, they're expecting it. Yeah, it's so crazy. And, and that twisted form of entertainment adds to that whole thing of what's the kill count? How many did he get? You know, it's this whole gamification of it, really. I mean, it's just <laughs> it's just hard to really kind of think about how this is really happening and People are just radicalizing themselves in these circles online. Georgia Wells, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar.
that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.